Hi everyone and welcome to Traffic Jam. It's Georgia and I'm here with Isabel. Hi everybody. Uh, we hope that you're enjoying our episode and are learning something new every time you tune in. Whether or not you're in school, you can always learn something new, even if it is a movie reference from us. Mostly <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm working on it. We'll get there. We'll get there. One thing I want to bring up before we start is something someone said to me the other day, and it kind of bothered me, but I think it's definitely worth sharing. Okay, what is it? So I was telling someone about MISCO and our core mission and how we do anti-trafficking work. And they said, you know, you're never going to end that. There's too much and there's too many people involved. And they said it in this tone of like, why are you even bothering doing that? And I see how somebody could come from a perspective of frustration and hopelessness when looking at this issue because it is so large and there are so many people involved and it's been going on for so long. And I mean, it's such a growing issue. And I guess my response to that is I think it's important that we continue to do this work and let's reach for ending human trafficking because there are hundreds of people now that are prosecuted every year for trafficking. And the countries are continuing to work on their efforts to be able to prosecute traffickers. Hundreds of, you know, Children and men and women are rescued from their trafficking situation every year. And education efforts have grown so much. And knowledge is power in terms of protecting yourself. So the more that we're able to learn about trafficking and communicate it and put effort towards raising awareness, the safer we can make our communities. And so while, you know, maybe it is not likely that we're going to actually end human trafficking, like let's motivate ourselves to push for as far as we possibly can um, and do everything in our power that we can think of to help protect people. That was so motivational and I cannot even have even tried to say anything better than that. But like you said, we might not be able to end it, especially in our lifetime. But if we just make one step forward every year, I think it's 100% worth the fight. All right. So we have a little bit of a different episode for you all today. We are going to be talking about infant trafficking and exploring this horrendous form of trafficking in the context of Nigeria. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and family. Also, be sure to follow us on all of our social media channels. Uh, Those are going to be linked in the episode description below. For a lot of people, when they think about human trafficking, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, a young girl being kidnapped, sold to various people, likely men, for sex. And, you know, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that traffickers might be family or significant others. Um, A traffic victim, you know, male or female, uh, might not necessarily be physically locked up but are emotionally manipulated and threatened to the point that they feel that there's no way out. Human trafficking is the second largest global criminal enterprise after drug trafficking. And as the understanding of trafficking has continued to grow and countries have been incentivized to incorporate efforts to prevent and prosecute trafficking, we have seen increased success in eliminating the issue. However, human trafficking has continued to be such a profitable criminal market, and people actually predict it will surpass drug trafficking. So I guess I gave that little motivational speech in the beginning about how, you know, we're making progress every year. But today we are going to essentially be talking about a form of trafficking that is a little bit more recently discovered uh, than uh, some of the other forms that we typically think of. Um, And as a way that traffickers have kind of adapted to new markets and new opportunity. Um, I, and to kind of go along with this um, last comment, Georgia, that you made about, you know, the prediction that human trafficking will eventually surpass drug trafficking in terms of, you know, the revenue that it brings in. I heard somebody one time explain it um, 
in a very disturbing quote. And essentially what they said was, um, you know, you can sell uh, drugs. You sell it one time and it's used up. It's gone. You have to produce more constantly. But a person you can use over and over and continue to resell. And so that's why um, part of the reason, at least why people predict that it will eventually surpass because of that, you know, unfortunate ability, you can sell the same individual multiple times. They made that quote, or they put that quote in the Sound of Freedom movie too. Oh, okay. I had originally heard it um, when I was doing a 40-hour crisis intervention training for sexual violence. They were talking about it. I mean, it makes the same point, and it reiterates such a slap in the face of reality. Mm-hmm. And another, you know, troubling thing that research and investigations have really continued to reveal, though, is also how traffickers adapt to new markets and they find new ways to exploit. Uh, more hidden ways, ways that are blurry by the law that will, you know, take years for law enforcement to catch up uh, to in some countries, and one of those more recently discovered ways that, you know, we mentioned we were going to talk about um, is something called infant trafficking. Today, we are going to talk about what infant trafficking is, where we see it happening the most, the victims that are involved, and the way it has impacted the adoption industry. To start, when you hear infant trafficking, one might think, you know, it is obviously the trafficking of infants. But What we are talking about is actually a little bit more nuanced than that. In these cases, young girls are trafficked for the purpose of utilizing their reproductive capabilities. They're forced to give birth, and then the infant is then sold. Another term that is used to refer to this type of abuse are baby factories. Baby factories is a stomach-turning term. But everything about this form of human trafficking is absolutely horrendous. We are talking about trafficking children, raping them to get them pregnant, forcing them to give birth to their rapist's children, and then selling those babies. It really is sickening, and there's no sugarcoating this term. The trafficking of infants or baby factories is becoming a growing international concern. There are reported cases coming from Africa, Central America, and Asia. West Africa has actually served as a significant source of child trafficking and has contributed to the largest known source of infant trafficking uh, to date. For instance, Nigeria has been getting a lot of attention for this type of trafficking, And so we are mostly going to be talking about baby factories as they operate and exist in Nigeria. When we talk about baby factories, there are two main victims. The first group of children who experience abuse are the girls taken to baby factories and forced to birth infants. There has been a growing number of reports on girls kidnapped or coerced into baby factories throughout Nigeria since the first discovery in 2006. There was a report from 2008 where 25 girls were rescued from a hospital. Then in 2011, 32 girls were found in a baby factory. That same year, 17 girls were rescued from an orphanage and 30 pregnant girls were found in another baby factory. In 2013, there was a report of six girls found in a factory. Then another were 17 girls and 11 babies were rescued. 26 were rescued from a village, and another 16 pregnant girls were rescued from a clinic. So let's talk about some of the ways that girls are forced or coerced into these factories. Uh, Some girls are pregnant when kidnapped. Uh, With the stigma surrounding pregnancy outside of wedlock, these girls are easily exploited by traffickers, offering to bring them to, you know, a quote-unquote a woman's center for medical care or even free abortions. However, once they're there, the girls are locked inside and their phones are taken from them. They're forced to have the child, who is then taken from them and then sold. The girls will often experience repeated sexual abuse by their traffickers and uh, be forced to undergo multiple pregnancies. In other cases, girls are kidnapped from their town. 
if they are not already pregnant, they experience multiple rapes by their traffickers until they get pregnant. Keep in mind, pregnancy does not always protect the girls from further sexual abuse. Other girls, quote-unquote, willingly follow traffickers to baby factories. They are not physically forced, but their low financial situation is taken advantage of, and baby harvesting as a form of entrepreneurship is glamorized by traffickers. Gender discrimination has influenced social stigma. Girls are not always sent to school, deeming it a poor investment instead of leaving them to domestic work. However, this creates challenges for opportunities available to the girls seeking job opportunities. Social stigmas against pregnancies out of wedlock also leave girls vulnerable. They face social consequences, yet traffickers promise their care and help. So social stigma helps ensure a supply of women and girls. So that kind of links then, Georgia, the reports you were talking about earlier. There were a lot of girls found in hospitals and clinics and women's centers. But really, these are all fronts for baby factories. Girls are manipulated into believing that they are going to some kind of uh, healthcare center, but then are actually trapped into baby factories. Now, because these institutions, baby factories, operate outside of the law, there is motivation to save expenses by ignoring the proper care for these girls. Therefore, the girls, you know, not only face the sexual abuse, but they face abuse through lack of appropriate medical care and nutrition. And this can be particularly dangerous because of their body's developmental stage. There are reports of girls as young as 14 who have been taken to baby factories. And for you know young girls, their bodies are still developing and changing. And without that proper precaution and care, pregnancy can cause a risk to their reproductive organs. And that kind of damage can lead to you know future... Uh, stigmatization and leave girls vulnerable to further human rights abuses. Now, the second group of abused children are the infants born into these factories. And the abuse has both immediate and long-term consequences. Immediate abuse includes inadequate care after birth, when posing as a potential undercover adoptees from a baby factory, reporters were asked whether they wanted a baby with a placenta or one without a placenta. This statement leads investigators to believe that babies can be taken from the mother immediately after birth. Keep in mind, this is a period in which health workers suggest prompt breastfeeding. The consequences for an infant who cannot feed after birth are malnutrition and hypoglycemia, two factors that also influence later development. Early separation from the mother leads to other risks such as low birth weight, neurological issues, and even neonatal mortality. There's also a more subtle form of immediate abuse. And it's really outlined by what's called the Convention on the Rights of a Child. And this convention recognizes that a child has a right to a name and birth registration. However, infants that come from baby factories are usually denied these rights. Traffickers will produce fake passports to send children to different parts of the world. And without that official registration, the infant will later realize that they lack any official status of their existence. And this makes access to education or health care very challenging. They often struggle to obtain citizenship and are denied nationality. The Convention on the Rights of a Child also states that a child has the right to know its parents. However, DNA tests um, have revealed that the listed uh, birth parents are sometimes falsified, making it impossible for a child to track down um, its biological mother at any point in their life. That's a really sad reality that kids have to live with is they basically are non-existent. And if they wanted to even try to discover who they are, they can't. And that, you know, curiosity usually eventually comes with age, uh, knowing more about, you know, their birth parents um, and their nationality. But then also then, you know, being denied a nationality because you don't have official paperwork. Right. You're just an outcast on the globe. Right. It creates this huge sense of, like, disassociation. 
While these immediate abuses all have long-term consequences, some other forms of long-term abuse also include health concerns later in life and developmental abnormalities and poor emotional development. The infants are abused through various means, depending on where they are sent after birth. It's believed that many are sold for adoption, while others are exploited for cheap labor and prostitution. Because they lack the official registration, these infants are in high demand. Some are harvested for their organs, and it's believed that about 5 to 10% of kidney transplants come from the illegal organ market. And finally, uh, some are likely forced to serve as child soldiers or sent as sex slaves for insurgent groups. Let's pause for a moment to take all of this in. It's horrifying. It's sad. It's ugly. It's sickening. But it's reality. It's really hard to believe that we live in a world where this exists. But it does. And it's a profitable market for people out there. How twisted do you have to be to operate a baby factory for your own benefit? It's upsetting to know this is occurring, and God only knows how long it's been occurring. As mentioned, the first reported baby factory was discovered in 2006. But these could have been operating for years, for decades in reality, because we know the demand has always been present. And now we have hinted to this a little bit, uh, but some people might be wondering, you know, why traffickers are going almost through this like extra step to like breed babies for lack of a better term. Like where is the demand for this type of trafficking? And there is actually quite a lot. First, like mentioned, infants born into baby factories aren't usually given proper identification which makes that appealing to somebody purchasing that child because people won't be tracking the infant down. Yeah, if nobody's going to be looking for the child, it's definitely a lower risk than kidnapping a child that already belongs to somebody. Organ harvesting, like we mentioned, has created another demand. It's estimated that 0.3% of trafficking victims are exploited for their organs. We know that's not a huge number, but... That's just an estimate of the numbers that we already have. With the organ market on the rise, there is speculation that the Nigerian militants are seeking organs to sustain their insurgency financially. Militants further drive demand for baby harvesting by purchasing child soldiers. Globally, it is estimated that over 300,000 children are involved in armed conflict. Northeast Nigeria's uprising with Boko Haram has motivated the use of child soldiers. In 2014, they were forced to serve in suicide attacks, and young girls were used as sex slaves for the insurgents. Now, another uh, major motivation, and one that we will largely be focusing on um, throughout this episode, is going to be the high infertility rates. So, within Africa, Nigeria has one of the highest infertility rates. Yet, there is a lack of, you know, medical technology and finances to pursue medical options um, that might be more, you know, readily available in more uh, developed countries. Therefore, couples seek adoption. However, the process is not without its stringent demands and challenges. Therefore, you know, traffickers have then been able to develop an informal adoption service that has thrived. So traffickers are running these false adoption agencies that are able to run completely outside of the law. With infertility rates being high and the lack of technological advances, there are also stigmas surrounding infertility that could also push couples to adopt. But what is also actually interesting, that there is resistance to the willingness to accept adoption as like legitimate in Nigeria. And so some people will cite like religious reasons. For instance, uh, Islam may be interpreted to hold that adoption is not allowed as it is deemed wrong to assign the paternity of a child to anyone other than the biological father. Uh, Some Nigerian Christians argue that, you know, adopting suggests a lack of faith that God will bless one's family with a child. There are also stigmas associated with unknown parental background or socio-psychological perceptions 
that, you know, one cannot love an adopted child to the same degree as a biological child. There is like a fear of disloyalty or abandonment if the child learns that they have been adopted. So while there is this like push for adoption at the same time, there's also like a resistance to it because of all these other uh, stigmas, which I think has then really helped to further breed this informal adoption service because sometimes what will happen too is uh, a couple will adopt but they won't tell anybody that um it's an adopted child they will the woman will pretend that she is pregnant that way you know the community truly believes that it is their biological child on the other side nigeria has been working to raise public awareness on adoption and break the stigmas In some cases, families will adopt to complete the perfect perception of a family, the father, mother, son, and daughter. If one of the genders is missing, couples will adopt. This may preserve the family lineage. Female children are also perceived highly because they are a financial asset due to marriage and are the ones who will later produce grandchildren. So while adoption has become more popular, This leaves room for traffickers to take advantage if proper protections are not put into place, especially when the adoption process is very complicated and expensive. And there is a stigma towards infertility. An informal adoption system sounds very appealing to people. And so that is where the traffickers step in. With that stigma surrounding adoption and the complexities associated with the formal institution, expenses and various fees that may arise. There are different ways that baby factories can operate within Nigeria and be an appealing route to families. First, you know, there is selling infants on the black market. Here, infants may be sold to traffickers, uh, militia groups, organ harvesters, or families looking to adopt. However, because Nigeria's adoption system really lacks transparency, There are informal adoption practices that allow baby harvesters to sell infants to fill existing orphanages. Um, This occurs both within the country of Nigeria and across country lines. Or baby factories, you know, will pose as an orphanage. Uh, Informal systems do not require official child registration upon birth, as we mentioned before. Um, And again, this can help attract infertile couples as, you know, the stigmas continue to exist around adoption. Um, In some cases, like I said, the woman will pretend to be pregnant um, and then nine months later adopt a newborn infant, making it look like her biological child. That way she avoids, you know, the stigma of adoption and the stigma of being infertile. Let's talk a little bit about the experiences of adoptees, or at least what some things are that have been reported. The desire to conform to the social values of having a family has, to a degree, increased acceptance of adoption within Nigeria. However, this does not correlate to a more positive perception. There are still cultural stigmas, like we have mentioned, associated with the practice and its impact on how adopted children are treated. In general, even in the case of formal adoptions, society often views adoptees as outcasts. They are disrespected and even hated. Another concerning trend is child abuse by the adopters. These children are considered lesser than biological children because of the stigma around where they may have come from. They could have been the child of a criminal, an addict, or a prostitute. Therefore, they may suffer sexual assault, physical abuse, and child labor within their adopted family. In cases where couples later come to find they are fertile and can produce biological children, the adopted children may be neglected. They may not receive certain inheritance rights as all resources will be distributed amongst biological children. What's more is there is an increased risk of abuse for children adopted through informal processes as there is no form of follow-up or monitoring. And it's really important that we're not saying that every adopted kid goes through this type of abuse and cultural backlash, but these are potential risks that can occur from it, especially with these informal baby factory processes. Right. And all of these experiences, you know, have been reported to some degree uh, within the country. 
these are very uh, real um, situations and concerns that are happening. And it is, and it's very bleak uh, for, you know, that child is born into this. They are so vulnerable and are stuck in this unsafe situation. Like you mentioned, there is, you know, there is no follow-up or monitoring in this informal system. And so they have nobody uh, looking out for them. So what is law enforcement doing with this form of trafficking? We have mentioned, you know, earlier that there have been rescues of girls and infants. However, the progress needed is not quite there yet. And surprisingly, there is actually a lot of confusion about whether baby factories fall under the jurisdiction of law enforcement and the developed task force to go after trafficking, where some law enforcement actually suggests it falls outside their jurisdiction and it should be under the adoption law. It is interesting because with the definition of human trafficking, it is, I guess, no longer encompassing of all forms of trafficking. And because of that, law enforcement, you know, they're not clear on what their scope is in this situation. Like It's obvious that, you know, the girl mothers are trafficked. People are not really arguing that. But the babies uh, that are born in these situations kind of bring, is what, that's what's bringing the confusion. Okay. I know it's force, fraud, and coercion. And we're, when we're talking about the babies, isn't it kind of a fraud birth? Oh, can you call a birth fraud because they're lying about where this baby is coming from? Or the adoptees know that they're getting them from the baby factories. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it's the sale of, it's the illegal sale of the child. We are going to go through, essentially, in this segment, a whole process of how baby factories still fall under adoption. We're going to talk about the dialogue between baby factories versus adoption and how, you know, baby factories should fall under human trafficking, but what, you know, the adoption market should do to protect from this type of situation leaking into its institution. So what I really want to do is go ahead and look at this, like, adoption versus trafficking dynamic to see, like, where baby factories should fall. The Nigerian Trafficking Task Force um, is sometimes kind of questioning where their scope is in do baby factories do baby factories fall under adoption law or under human trafficking, you know, in their scope? And ultimately what my goal is, is to convince, you know, us and our audience that it should fall under human trafficking and falls under the jurisdiction of law enforcement to go after. Now, when comparing adoption and trafficking, there are some that automatically connect the similarities and even actually view adoption as a form of trafficking. And the reason is that both involve the transfer of children to meet demands. In some cases, children from, you know, poor regions are sent to rich nations. Or in the case of Nigeria, demand for children is perpetuated, you know, through the value of family and stigmatization of infertility. The end purpose for seeking adoption, whether to have sons or daughters, you know, or sex, you know, labor slaves, makes no difference. They say that vulnerable beings are taken advantage of, stripped from their family, and sometimes their country, culture, and native language. Now, I do think that there is a difference between adoption and human trafficking. Adoption, you know, has been able to change a lot of people's lives for the better and used as a mechanism to place families together who should be together. So I do want to go ahead and preface with that. But it is really interesting, and we're going to look at this line of argument throughout this episode. Right. So those who deny adoption as a form of trafficking focus on the narrative of millions of parentless children suffering. Therefore, adoption can be critical to providing improved quality of life. But when we start to get into the ethics of adoption, it's very complex. Adoption can serve as a conditional good that places the child's needs first. Right. And that is kind of like the other end of the spectrum. Yet, you know, the adoption industry has taken a heavy market approach 
with weak capacity for regulation, rendering risk for abusive practices. There is a researcher who looked at the ethics of adoption and the importance of placing the child's needs first. Uh, the researcher Smolin uh, wrote in 2004 this adoption triad. And I want to go ahead and kind of break down what this looks like. So imagine a triangle and the child is going to be at the top of the triangle. And then the bottom two corners are going to be uh, the birth family and then the adoptive family. Respect for dignity must be given to each triad member to maintain ethicality. At the same time, the child is positioned at the top because it shares, you know, that unique relationship with the other triad members, the biological and the adoptive family. Therefore, the child's interests cannot be considered without considering the birth and the adoptive families. So what we're trying to really look at with this triad is evaluating the ethics of adoption and whether or not adoption is putting the child's needs first. So we're trying to make a distinction right now between adoption as a conditional good and human trafficking and trying to show with this triad that there that there is a difference. While abuse might spill over into adoption, that does not mean that all cases should be considered human trafficking. So to go through with this triad, let's say if the birth family is deprived of dignity and rights, that in turn is going to have a negative intrinsic impact on the child and its connection with, you know, that triad member. Going back to the case of baby harvesting, if a young girl is forced or coerced into a factory, raped until pregnant, and has her child stolen from her, her human, sexual, and reproductive rights have all now been violated. And the harm caused to her is connected to the child. There are numerous ways that damage might be caused, yet one is manifested through the false assumption that a continuing relationship between the child and the birth family ends. There is still that connection there because regardless of the relationship with the adopted family, the child often expresses, you know, curiosity about their birth origin and family. Reunions sometimes help, you know, satisfy the continued, you know, psychological connection to one's origin. Yet for, you know, the baby harvesting industry, the system is built on the exploitation and victimization of the birth mother and denies the child information about its identity. Therefore, the child is inherently harmed. Uh, the infant is also subject, you know, obviously to physical harm um, as they are, you know, born in unsterile conditions and they lack proper medical care for development. So if adoption is to uphold the child's best interest, it must respect all of the triad members and only then can it be considered a conditional good. All right. So given this adoption triad and the emphasis on respecting all parties involved, there's no way for baby factories to be considered good, clean adoptions. Right? Exactly. And we all know that from the jump. The core of baby factories is abuse in every evil way possible. From the mother and the abuse she endures to the child that she has, and that further abuse. The means of kidnapping, coercion, rape, and abuse do not justify the end of a family being completed with their own adopted child. Increasing concern about child trafficking has added to the ideological controversy surrounding adoption. Trafficking has made its way into the adoption industry. And I think the challenging part is what to do to keep children safe. There is a lot of ambiguity and the international community has to really work to distinguish when adoption may become an illicit trafficking case. Exactly. So just because it falls in the realm of, you know, occurring within the adoption system does not necessarily, I feel like, have to mean that the Human Trafficking Task Force has no scope or jurisdiction. I feel like now they've merged. So I feel like that is an argument for uh, the Human Trafficking Task Force to step in. Like you have one, you have some people on one end saying 
adoption is a form of trafficking because it involved the transfer of a child and the exchange of money is involved. And on the other end, you have people who see adoption as a way to bring new families together and improve a child's life. Now, I've never heard about the extreme end where some say it, adoption is trafficking. And if the quote unquote sale of children in every case is trafficking, that would mean for the argument to be to end adoption altogether, which is not what we are trying to say at all in this episode. If it does cause harm to children, that is an option in what some people tend to say. But I think Smolin has given a good example to help us get away from that extreme. They say that courts recognize children are a form of custody. Custody transfers involve a financial component that equates to the quote-unquote sale of a child. Take, for instance, divorce cases. One party may give up custody for a more financially beneficial settlement. While this common scenario is not necessarily looked at favorably, it is extreme to label it illegal child trafficking. Right. Uh, With abuse of the adoption industry, both international and domestic adoption struggled to define a clear difference between legal and illicit sale of children. The Hague Convention outlines what constitutes valid consent uh, for adoption under the operational protocol for the Convention of the Rights of a Child, or the OPCRC. So the first requirement for consent is that the birth family must have received information that would justify the ability to provide informed consent. This can involve providing counseling and legal knowledge of what consenting to adoption will entail. Second, consent cannot be coerced through payment or any other form of compensation. Finally, consent must be given freely in the required legal form and expressed in writing. If the means for achieving consent do not meet these standards, adoption is constituted as illicit child selling under the OPCRC. Additionally, if consent were obtained through uh, fraud or deception, such adoption would be prohibited. Now, Nigeria has not ratified the Hague Convention, so maybe that should be a first step for them in trying to combat this issue and helping to define, you know, boundaries between what's under the adoption scope and what's under human trafficking. Because when you, you know, listen to these, you know, necessary standards for consent, like my mind automatically, you know, recognizes that baby factories don't obviously comply with any of these forms of consent and are therefore not a valid adoption. Okay. So maybe just like you said, the initial commitment to following it will start to create a top-down effect of small implementations to really start working on this. Hopefully, because I think really where you know a lot of the confusion comes from in this case is lack of definitions to help define who, like whose job it is to do what. And because that's unclear, enough's not getting done. And that's why it's so important for us to talk about um, how baby factories are a form of human trafficking and should be addressed by the Human Trafficking um, Task Force. That way we can start seeing hopefully further um, success in terms of eliminating this form of uh, trafficking and really being able to address it. And lack of consent is really important when we're looking at this situation. Documents like the Palermo Protocol also outline exploitation as a means of illicit child selling, which as we looked at earlier, there is sexual and physical abuse with baby factories. Duh. The most tricky part is the financial piece. The birth mother is offered sums of money to relinquish her child, especially in cases of poverty. Questions regarding the validity of her consent to adoption comes into question. Instead, some pose that money should first be offered to keep the family together. Evidence suggests that it may require a significantly less sum of money to keep a family together instead of the hundreds or even thousands of dollars associated with adoption. Therefore, some polls that consent to adoption should only be considered where financial assistance to keep the child was first available. Neither the OPCRC nor the Hague Convention requires an initial offer of financial assistance to keep the child. 
at the same time, any monetary sum that induces consent is considered child selling between these two conventions. However, proof of inducement is nearly impossible to measure. It seems cruel to not provide a mother with financial assistance to carry her child to term. Yet, did it coax or force consent? I think that's a very interesting, like, potential, um, at least partial solution. You know, this idea of, like, trying to keep family together with that, like, financial uh, incentive. I don't know exactly how, how, obviously I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert in this area, though, so I have a hard time really evaluating it in terms of, like, if that is sustainable, um, like, long-term. Uh, but I definitely think it's something that's worth, you know, talking about. I mean, international rules regarding consent to adoption lack sufficient boundaries. And adoption is an institution with space for situations where inducement is likely to occur. So it is important to try and reduce that as much as you know, as you possibly can. I mean, financial aid really is conditional on relinquishing a child as of now. Thus, you know, that kind of creates an incentive for somebody who needs, you know, more finances. And especially in impoverished countries where even like a small gift may serve as like an inducement. Yet this is not actually deemed illicit under international law. In cases with like no financial component, consent, is unlawful when coerced or received through through fraud and misrepresentation. Uh, while this is not considered an illegal child sale, it is deemed a wrongful taking of a child. In the case of baby harvesting, when the traffickers transfer the child to an adopted adoption agency or directly to a family, it is then considered child trafficking because they are exploiting an infant for financial gain instead of having the child's best interest. Determining, you know, where the child is transferred is based on market practices, where the highest bidder is, regardless of capability. So when talking about adoption and trafficking, one of the, you know, what we saw earlier, one of the big differences is obtaining proper consent. And it is tricky, but, you know, there are some guidelines to follow in terms of you know, providing that financial incentive and in what conditions can consent be considered given. And now I feel like a second really big difference in these two cases is where they're sending the child. For the traffickers, it is very much just based on the market and where they're making the most money, whereas under adoption, they're looking at what families have the capacity to raise this child. Um, And so there is, you know, more there are more guidelines involved in where ch- children are placed. When you put it in terms like that, I don't see how the two can get so mixed up. I understand how trafficking can happen in adoption, but I don't see how they can just, the lines can get so blurred when people are trying to say they don't have any jurisdiction over that. I, I completely agree. So adoption can only be separated from child trafficking if adequate systems are in place to ensure adoptions are legitimate and that birth mothers and babies are protected from exploitation. So I do think that, you know, hopefully at this point we have made an argument that baby factories should fall under the jurisdiction of Human Trafficking Task Force in Nigeria and that just the way that they are structured They are different in terms of the way they try to get, you know, consent or lack thereof and um, the motives in which they use to place children. They are, you know, while uh, baby factories try to operate, you know, under the guise of adoption, it is, it has very different motives that are clearly um, exploitative. And so they are different. But again, like Georgia, you just said, adoption does have the potential to have, you know, those cases of human trafficking within its system. And so because of that, some people argue that the adoption industry should just be completely shut down because it does have the capacity to foster child trafficking. And what I want to say to that is, 
you know, obviously if a institution is hurting children, that is 100% an option. However, I want to say that we're not quite at the point to where we necessarily need to completely shut down adoption. Because as it stands now, with adoption law, it has not done everything in its power to prevent child trafficking. I think that there are first other solutions that can be implemented within the adoption system to help protect children and keep out the trafficking. And I want to go ahead and give what some of those, you know, potential options could be. So the global framework for human trafficking blatantly applies to birth mothers, you know, which in and of itself should be enough to shut down baby factories. But there are challenges, you know, applying it to the situation of children as adoptees. The OPCRC, the Hague Convention, the Child Rights Act cannot distinguish between licit and illicit payments adequately. A closer look at adoption practices reveals its potential to become a form of child trafficking because market behavior dominates the field and has operated as a market for humans. Therefore, there are recommendations posed by researchers Huntley and Smolin for international treaties to amend. First, it must forbid the conditional provision of financial assistance to the birth family on the relinquishment of the child. So that, you know, financial assistance that a family would receive in putting up a child for adoption kept it cannot be conditional on them actually giving up the child. So I guess either they need to remove it completely or that financial assistance needs to be provided no matter what, even if they change their mind later about the adoption. So let's say they get this money for, you know, their their medical bills. They get money to help cover the medical bills um, oftentimes. But let's say they want to change their mind about the adoption. Let's say the mother births a child and is like, I changed my mind. What this solution would look like is she still has the capability to do that without then like forfeiting or having to pay back any of the financial assistance she has already been given. Um, and she will still get that help that she would have been given if she were to um, adopt out her child. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. Second, the financial aid should be offered to keep parents and children together. These two reforms will provide greater clarity on whether consent is induced. Additionally, reforms are needed within Nigeria to prevent baby harvesting as the demand for infants will create continued motivation. Nigeria must ratify the Hague Convention. This action would require more transparency within the adoption industry and aligned with the standards of consent from the OPCRC. And like I mentioned before, Nigeria's Human Trafficking Task Force must recognize that baby harvesting falls under its jurisdiction as child trafficking. This jurisdictional uh, recognition will benefit victims and the government as there is already um, a human trafficking agency established in Nigeria to take on these cases. They wouldn't have to develop a new task force and add additional resources to it. It's something that already exists. And so they should go ahead and put these baby harvesting cases under its jurisdiction and go after them. Like you just said, I want to reiterate that they already have these resources available to them. They're not creating anything new. They're just making their regulations, guidelines, and jurisdictions more clear and defined, and therefore they would be doing more good. I don't really see anything controversial about considering these baby factories as human trafficking. Right, and I think, and I know we've, you know, we've talked about, you know, human trafficking, we've talked about baby factories, and we've talked about adoption, and I think, you know, this conversation can definitely get a little bit confusing with how these are like all these are related but also different and so what I want to make sure that everybody kind of takes away from this conversation is that um, baby factories are operating and there's obviously the adoption system that is operating and 
while we can think of baby factories as separate from adoption, it does bleed into the adoption industry at times because they do provide infants to existing orphanages that have empty spaces to help fill those orphanages because they can make money by, you know, adopting out children to families because those families pay a lot of money. And so there's really kind of two lines of solutions that we're putting forth. One, we still need to make sure that we help protect the adoption system from um, bringing in any kind of child trafficking. But at the same time, we need to look at baby harvesting and focusing on eliminating that because that is what is also kind of helping bring in human trafficking into the adoption industry. So there, so ultimately, overall, like there is a lot of transparency that needs to come forth um, with adoption to also help law enforcement find what are the baby factories and what are legitimate operating orphanages. Like, but so baby, I mean, baby factories, it is such a complex issue that extends into human trafficking realm, but also the adoption industry. And traffickers are really adapting to new markets to bring more revenue and avoid detection. And so it's so important that, you know, the vulnerable parties in this situation, the girl mothers, the born infants, are the ones whose safety is being prioritized and solutions, you know, are moving forward um, to address both the human trafficking side and to help just increase safety within the adoption industry. All right. Today's topic was heavy, but we are here to help bring up the uncomfortable truths that our world faces. But I do think we need to end this episode on a happy note or a happier note. I agree. So I know Thanksgiving is coming up. Georgia, do you have any like favorite Thanksgiving traditions that you're going to be celebrating this week? So we host Thanksgiving in my house, and it's always a whole production the days leading up to the big day. I'm not going to lie. It gets very hostile in my <laughs> house. It's, it gets bad. It gets scary out there. But once everyone sits down for dinner, we all kind of take a deep breath and we relax and we could actually enjoy my mother's cooking because she is a really good cook. But the whole day, couple days leading up to Thanksgiving... You just stress out all day, every day about what needs to get done, what needs to get clean, where the decorations are going, setting up the tables. And it's a lot. The food is totally worth it, but it's a lot of stress at my house. That sounds like it. I will say, really, my one job at Thanksgiving is to make the twice-baked potatoes. That's all I have to focus on. That sounds relaxing and tasty. Yes. <laughs> the, I always joke, that's the one thing I know how to cook. It's a good thing to know how to cook. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, This Thanksgiving, we are grateful for all of you. um, And we are even more grateful when you share these conversations with your friends and family. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, leave reviews, um, and find us on social media. Everything is linked in the episode description. If you're interested in our sources, they are in our blogs that are linked in the description as well. We hope you all enjoy your Thanksgiving with your loved ones, and we look forward to seeing you back here in two weeks.